0: Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our January 2016 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, is commonly diagnosed among children in the United States. The authors of this article examined trends in parent-reported ADHD prevalence between 2003 and 2011 across racial and ethnic groups. The researchers used data from a national survey of 200,000 children aged 5 to 17 years. Parental reports of ADHD diagnosis over time were examined, as well as other factors that might affect a diagnosis of ADHD, such as race and ethnicity, gender, age, poverty level, primary language, and neighborhood safety. The authors found that over the past decade, the prevalence of parent-reported ADHD increased 47% among youth aged 10 to 14 years and 52% among those aged 15 to 17 years. Increasing prevalence was observed for all racial and ethnic groups and was highest among white, non-Hispanics. Notable findings included an 83% increase in ADHD prevalence among Hispanic adolescents. Also, females saw an increase of 55% compared with a 40% increase among males. The overall prevalence of parent-reported ADHD rose 43% between 2003 and 2011, which represents a staggering increase of 5.8 million youth with ADHD nationwide. The authors conclude that more research is needed to explain the increase in ADHD and the causes of the observed racial and ethnic disparities. The use of more than one antipsychotic simultaneously, or antipsychotic polypharmacy, is routinely employed in clinical practice for those individuals who demonstrate suboptimal response to monotherapy. Evidence supporting such an approach, however, has not been forthcoming. Moreover, there is evidence that antipsychotic polypharmacy is associated with added risks from side effects to increased non-adherence. Control studies examining the efficacy of antipsychotic polypharmacy have been limited, and to date there have been no double-blind studies. The present randomized controlled trial, sponsored by the Canadian Psychiatric Research Foundation, was designed to fill this gap. It involved discontinuing the secondary antipsychotic that had been added to augment response. In total, 35 subjects were enrolled in this 12-week study. 17 continued to receive antipsychotic polypharmacy, and 18 switched to monotherapy. Withdrawal due to clinical deterioration was higher in those switched to monotherapy, although the difference was not significant. Almost 80% were safely transitioned. Notably, all four patients who were withdrawn because of clinical worsening were taking clozapine suggesting that success may be influenced by stage of illness, that is, treatment-resistant schizophrenia. Taken together, these findings suggest that clinicians should be cautious in engaging in antipsychotic polypharmacy given the potential adverse effects, combined with increased costs and lack of data supporting such an approach. At the same time, Existing antipsychotic polypharmacy should be reconsidered in the absence of clear evidence supporting the superiority of antipsychotic monotherapy. Posttraumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a common and impairing disorder that follows a traumatic experience. While trauma is prevalent, only some people who experience it develop posttraumatic stress disorder suggesting that certain individuals have risk factors that make them more susceptible. One possible risk factor is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. ADHD is associated with risky behavior and impulsivity, attributes that can by themselves increase trauma exposure. Deficits in attention and prefrontal cortical function have been found in both ADHD and PTSD, suggesting neurobiological similarities. The current meta-analysis and systematic review, which was supported in part by the Pediatric Psychopharmacology Council Fund, examined the literature on the association between post-traumatic stress disorder and ADHD. The search identified controlled studies in the English language that included structured interviews and examined the relationship between the two disorders. Results showed a bidirectional association between ADHD and post-traumatic stress disorder. The risk for PTSD was higher in individuals with ADHD and vice versa. In studies examining the risk of PTSD in individuals with ADHD compared to normal controls, those with ADHD had nearly four times the risk of developing PTSD. Studies using traumatized cohorts also found a significantly increased risk of post-traumatic stress disorder in those with ADHD. Thus, increased risk for PTSD in ADHD is not due solely to trauma exposure. The association between the two disorders may be linked to similar abnormalities in neural circuits and common genetic risk factors. These findings should encourage clinicians to screen for post-traumatic stress disorder in patients with ADHD and vice versa and may help guide policy and screening efforts to reach at-risk individuals. This study may be the first with the sole purpose to investigate whether gray matter volume is associated with the treatment response of psychotic symptoms to antipsychotic drugs in Alzheimer's disease patients who are antipsychotic naive. Risperidone was administered for six weeks to 25 antipsychotic naïve Alzheimer's disease patients who had psychotic symptoms. Symptoms were rated with the Korean version of the neuropsychiatric inventory at baseline and at six weeks. Treatment response was defined using the change in inventory score from baseline to six weeks. Gray matter volumes were measured with MRI and voxel-based morphometry at baseline age, gender, years of education, total intracranial volume, apolipoprotein E genotype dosage of respiridone, the baseline scores of the Korean version of the mini mental state examination, and the baseline scores of the neuropsychiatric inventory were measured as covariants of no interest. Researchers found that treatment response to psychotic symptoms to respiridone was positively associated with volumes in both the left and right putamen, left parahippocampus, gyrus, and left amygdala after controlling covariance of no interest. These results suggest that the volumes of specific gray matter regions probably contribute to treatment response of psychotic symptoms in Alzheimer's disease patients. In this study, sponsored by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, the authors investigated how quetiapine compared to lithium for a broad group of outpatients with bipolar disorder. To do this, they used what is called a pragmatic design, which approximates usual clinical care. In the study, clinicians could prescribe other medications as needed, but with the following restrictions. The lithium group could not receive quetiapine or any other second-generation antipsychotic. The quetiapine group could not receive lithium or any additional antipsychotic. Patients were treated for six months, and treatment was known by the patients and the clinicians. Raters were kept blind to treatment assignment to minimize any bias. The authors found several surprising things. Overall, about 20% of the group had a sustained response, good but not great for this group, that had many comorbid conditions. They also found no significant differences between quetiapine and lithium, even for those patients who had bipolar I or II disorder or those who had anxiety. Lithium was somewhat better tolerated. The authors conclude that the increased use of second-generation antipsychotics as a treatment for bipolar disorder that has led to a widespread shift away from lithium as the cornerstone of therapy may not provide substantially better outcomes, safety, or tolerability. Ultimately, the choice of using either quetiapine or lithium may come down to side effects. The authors recommend that similar studies are needed to look at the outcomes of combination treatment. In this month's CME offering, researchers investigated the relationship between long-term antidepressant treatment and the development of dementia. Their study involved two subsets of patients enrolled in the Taiwan National Health Insurance Program between 2005 and 2011. 5,000 patients who had major depression and were subsequently diagnosed with dementia, and 5,000 controls who had major depression but no dementia history. The proportional distributions of antidepressant use and comorbidities were compared in the dementia and non-dementia groups. This study received funding support from the Taiwanese government. The authors found that the dementia patients were more likely to have diabetes, hypertension, stroke, and head injury. The risk of dementia was lower for patients using tricyclic antidepressants. By contrast, the use of SSRIs, monamine oxidase inhibitors, heterocyclic antidepressants, and other antidepressants was associated with an increased risk of dementia. Furthermore, as the cumulative dose was increased, tricyclic antidepressants reduced the risk of dementia, whereas the other antidepressants increased the risk. The authors conclude that the incidence of dementia is associated with antidepressant use. In this article, researchers sought to examine the relationship between daily cigarette smoking, and the risk of onset and persistence of panic attacks over a 10-year period among mid-adulthood participants in the United States. They also examined whether quitting smoking reduced the risk for subsequent panic attacks. Data were drawn from a nationally representative sample of adults aged 25 years and over at baseline. These participants were interviewed in 1994 and 2005. After controlling for demographic characteristics and substance use problems, persistent daily smoking in both waves was associated with a significantly increased likelihood of panic attacks. Moreover, smoking abstinence significantly reduced the risk of new-onset panic attacks and the persistence of panic attacks. The authors conclude that their results provide novel evidence about the role of smoking in the onset and persistence of panic attacks among those in mid-adulthood. Specifically, their data suggests that smoking is associated with an increased risk of panic attacks and that quitting helps to reduce such risk. Many women of childbearing age are treated with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. However, these women and their healthcare professionals often face a dilemma as whether to continue SSRI treatment during pregnancy due to potential adverse outcomes such as congenital heart anomalies. In this study, funded in part by the United Kingdom Medical Research Council, the authors examined electronic health records from over 200,000 pairs of women and their children who were registered with a general practitioner in the United Kingdom. The risk of congenital heart anomalies was evaluated in more than 2,700 women who received SSRI treatment during pregnancy. This risk was compared to women who stopped SSRI treatment just before they became pregnant, received other antidepressant treatment during pregnancy, or received no treatment before or during pregnancy. Less than 1% of children had a record of congenital heart anomalies within five years of birth, and there were no significant differences related to antidepressant treatment during pregnancy. However, independent of antidepressant prescribing, women with diabetes, alcohol problems, or illicit drug use had a two-fold increased risk of having a child with congenital heart anomalies. Likewise, Obesity and older maternal age were also associated with an increased risk of congenital heart conditions. The authors conclude that on the basis of existing evidence, advising women to stop antidepressant treatment in pregnancy may be counterproductive. Although most patients with schizophrenia are not aggressive, individuals with this disorder do have an increased risk of hostile and aggressive behavior. Atypical antipsychotics are an important treatment option for these patients. To compare improvement in hostility in patients treated with cariprazine or placebo, Citrome and colleagues conducted a post-hoc analysis of data from three controlled trials. The studies were sponsored by Forrest Laboratories, an Allergan affiliate, and Gideon Richter. All subjects had an acute exacerbation of schizophrenia. The principal outcome measure was mean change from baseline to week six on the hostility item of the positive and negative syndrome scale. Additional hostility analyses were conducted by introducing certain positive symptoms and sedation as covariates. Results showed statistically significant improvement in favor of cariprazine over placebo on all hostility item analyses. These findings suggest that cariprazine improved hostility in adult patients with exacerbated schizophrenia independently of its effects on the positive symptoms of schizophrenia and the effects of sedation. The magnitude of change for cariprazine increased with greater levels of baseline hostility. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the January table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Neuropsychological impairment is a key feature of late-onset depression, or LOD, and remains after clinical recovery. However, the neurobiological mechanism underlying the persistent cognitive deficits in LOD remains unclear. Neuroimaging studies have shown widely distributed structural and functional abnormalities in patients with LOD, suggesting brain network dysfunction as the best explanatory model for understanding the biological mechanism of LOD. Given the increasing number of neural circuits implicated in elderly depression, this study employed resting-state functional magnetic resonance imaging and graph theory approaches to systematically investigate the topological organization of the functional connectome in patients with remitted LOD or RLOD. The author's work was supported in part by the National Natural Science Foundation of China. Results showed that both rlod and control groups showed efficient small-world topology in whole-brain functional networks this finding suggests an optimal balance between functionally segregated and integrated organization importantly the rlod patients exhibited increased shortest path length and decreased network efficiency in their brain networks as compared with healthy controls. This would imply abnormal topological organization. Additionally, RLOD-related decreases in nodal efficiencies were predominantly located in the frontal striatal occipital areas that are in general of concern in LOD studies. Lastly, The topological aberrations correlated with the neuropsychological performances in RLOD patients, indicating their potential in characterizing how network disorganization can affect cognitive function associated with disease processes. Overall, the study demonstrates that the topological organization of functional brain networks is disrupted in RLOD and that this disruption may contribute to cognitive deficits in RLOD patients. In the treatment of schizophrenia, a re-challenge with an antipsychotic after an adverse event has always been an important clinical decision. However, the decision to re-challenge must often be made in the absence of evidence-based supporting knowledge. Pneumonia in patients with schizophrenia has an extremely unfavorable course with greater risk of admission to an intensive care unit, acute respiratory failure, need for mechanical ventilation, and mortality. Previous studies have demonstrated that second-generation antipsychotic medications, especially clozapine, are associated with an increased risk of pneumonia. Patients who survive an episode of pneumonia constitute a high-risk population in which pneumonia is likely to recur. To shed more light on this, the present case control study, funded by the National Science Council of Taiwan and the Taipei City Hospital, used a nationwide systematic data set to address the risk of recurrent pneumonia associated with antipsychotic exposure. Study findings indicated that clozapine is the only antipsychotic bearing a 40% increased risk of pneumonia recurrence. Moreover, patients re-exposed to clozapine are two times more likely to suffer from recurrent pneumonia. Such risk is particularly high in women given that clozapine is the only option for treatment refractory schizophrenia and that discontinuation often bears the risk of psychotic relapse balancing the clinical benefits of clozapine against the quantifiable risk of serious adverse events is of paramount importance the present study provides knowledge for making an informed clinical decision regarding clozapine rechallenge by adopting a similar approach Future research may further quantify the risk of other medical conditions associated with antipsychotic reexposure to facilitate an evidence-based practice. This article presents findings from the Bipolar Clinical Health Outcomes Initiative in Comparative Effectiveness Study, a nationwide comparative effectiveness study of lithium and quetiapine. Supported through funding from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, researchers examined the role that baseline disability and functioning had on treatment response in 482 symptomatic individuals with bipolar disorder. They examined the effects of treatment on improvements in functioning, how changes in functioning differed between treatment responders and non-responders, and whether functioning and employment status moderated treatment response. Treatment response was defined as being very much improved for at least eight weeks of the study. The data show that treatment was associated with significant improvements in functioning and quality of life, regardless of treatment group. Responders showed greater improvements in quality of life and functioning than non-responders. Unemployed or disabled participants at baseline demonstrated greater illness severity than employed participants. Over the study duration, employed participants reported greater improvements in physical health and quality of life in leisure activities than both unemployed and disabled participants. Individuals who saw greater improvement in functioning and quality of life tended to show greater improvements in depressive and anxiety symptoms, as well as overall illness severity. The authors conclude that disability status was associated with a worse treatment response and prospective illness course. The results implicate functioning and employment status as important markers of illness severity and likelihood of recovery in bipolar disorder. The authors recommend that further research is necessary to examine whether targeting functional impairment in treatment would improve outcomes. Many studies have associated excess weight with depressive symptoms, but the relationship appears to be complex. It may be that adiposity causes depression, that depressive illness causes adiposity, or that both conditions operate together in a vicious cycle. Moreover, there is now considerable evidence that the accumulation of fat in the abdominal region is more important in this relationship than is fat in other areas of the body. What is also unclear is whether anxiety symptoms are likewise associated with adiposity. Importantly, the onset of depressive illness and obesity in adolescents may have particularly serious implications for future health. Yet, studies of adiposity and depressive symptoms in this age group have yielded inconsistent results. Against this backdrop, investigators at the University of Iowa, funded in part by the National Institute of Mental Health, studied body scans that measured fat in various areas of the body of 200 participants aged 15 to 20 years, half of whom had recently begun treatment with an antidepressant. Contrary to expectations, depressed individuals in late adolescence did not have higher amounts of fat than those free of depression. Among those who were overweight, however, depressed individuals carried significantly more fat, both in the abdominal area and elsewhere, than did those who were not depressed. The presence of generalized anxiety disorder was paradoxically associated with lesser amounts of fat. In adolescence, therefore, increasing adiposity may be associated with depressive symptoms only among those who are at least somewhat overweight, and the distribution of this fat may not matter as much as in other age groups. In contrast, the common disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, is not associated with increased fat stores. Previous studies have shown that use of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, may increase incidence of intracranial hemorrhage in patients with depression. However, little is known about the risk of stroke for users of serotonin nor epinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs, an increasingly prescribed and relatively new class of antidepressants. In a population-based nationwide cohort study from Taiwan, supported in part by the Taiwan National Science Council, researchers compared the risks of ischemic stroke and intracranial hemorrhages in new users of SNRIs and SSRIs. SSRI users served as the reference group. The authors found that SNRIs were comparable with SSRIs in adult patients with depression or anxiety. However, there was an increased incidence of intracranial hemorrhages in SNRI users who did not have prior depression. The authors suggest that SNRIs should be used cautiously in these patients in clinical practice. In animal models, r and modafinil exert dose-dependent anticonvulsant action. The literature in humans indicates no signal of seizure risk with these drugs. However, there is also no guidance about their use in patients who are at risk of seizures. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at ways to explore the risk of seizures with r and modafinil in individual cases, as well as possible drug interactions that could raise the risk. The full text of this column is freely available online. Please visit the January Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight three educational activities. In our first semi activity, supported by an educational grant from Decada, U.S. region in Lundbeck, you can explore the case of 86-year-old Mrs. J. Like many patients being treated for depression, she doesn't recognize the residual symptoms she is experiencing. Her psychiatrist uses several tools, including rating scales and collateral information, to identify her continuing symptoms and then considers different treatment strategies based on her age and symptoms. How would you coordinate care for a patient experiencing an acute bipolar episode? Play this game-based CME activity, supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca, to see if you can manage 24-year-old Kate's care after she is discharged from the hospital. You will test your knowledge of assessment tools, treatment response, and patient education as you help Kate recover from her latest episode. Unresolved symptoms of depression can cause functional impairment and negatively affect patients' work performance, home life, and relationships. Check out our third CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Forrest Laboratories, to learn how to assess functional impairments using validated rating scales and discover how to address medication side effects, comorbid disorders, and other contributors to impairment. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the January issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.